This program was made possible by an independent grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, who provided financial support for the program. Welcome to our COVID-19 chest webinar series. And today, uh, it's my pleasure to speak to some esteemed panelists. And we're going to be talking about a very exciting, very rich topic on managing COVID-19 in special populations, trying to cover everything right from patients with pre-existing rheumatological disorders to patients with underlying cancers and our pregnant patients as well. So I'm going to ask our wonderful speakers to go ahead and uh, say a couple of sentences to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started with our, with our talks. So let's start with you, Paul. Sure. Good afternoon, hopefully, or good evening to those of you who are in a different time zone. Um, my name is Paul DeMarco. I am rheumatologist with Arthritis and Rheumatism Associates. I am the head of the medical director of the Center for Rheumatology and Bone Research. And I have the privilege of being associated with Georgetown University. And it's my privilege to discuss rheumatologic issues and autoimmunity in COVID-19. Sharon, you can go next with your introduction. And you'll just have to unmute. Yes, thank yeah. you. So, yeah. I thought Paul was just going to continue with his uh, talk. So I am uh, Sharon Einav. I'm speaking to you from Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to be discussing uh, uh, COVID-19 in pregnant patients. I'm an intensivist uh, with a special interest in pregnant women uh, critical illness. And welcome to my kitchen. Thank you. And Jeremy? <clears throat> Hi, I'm Jeremy Warner, and uh, despite my background, I'm not actually in California, although I think a nice sunny field of flowers is a good thing to keep in mind these days. Um, so I'm an associate professor at uh, Vanderbilt University, um, where I'm a practicing hematologist, and I'm also a member of the Department of Biomedical Informatics, um, and I'm one of the co-founders of the COVID-19 and Cancer Consortium, and I'll be speaking with you about that later today. Thank you so much. And I'm Neha Dangayach. I'm a neurointensivist for Mount Sinai Health System and a member of the COVID-19 CHESS Task Force. So thank you to CHESS for this opportunity. And let us get started with Paul's slides. Okay, so I wanted to start with this uh, delightful Halloween costume that emerged on the internet. Uh, this young man is uh, keeping a positive outlook on uh, a little tongue in cheek, and I'm hoping to do the same thing with our talk today. Uh, next slide. I have three ideas I'd like to put forth to you. I'd like to use lupus as a model for systemic autoimmunity to highlight the idea that the patients have autoimmunity, concomitant immunodeficiencies, and this creates very unusual uh, situations in the context of infection management. Um, probably one of the most emerging concepts that we have seen in the rheumatology community is the comorbidities with systemic autoimmunity and its impact on COVID-19. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, emerging strategies that are uh, being presented by both my professional college. And then I'd like to uh, share some of my own personal thoughts. Next slide. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about lupus as a model of autoimmunity. Next slide. So that we're all on the same page um, our lupus patients are very, very interesting folks for a number of reasons. And, and perhaps one of the most important is while their immune system is souped up, if you will, or hypervigilant to its own tissues, there's also a superimposed defect in the immune system. We have impaired 
phagocytic function, we have impaired T cell and B cell activity, particular endothelial abnormalities. And, and a lot of these patients have complement deficiencies. And that result is that they manage infection differently. Um, their uh, nephritis and renal impairment can change their ability to manage infection and they have accelerated cardiovascular disease, a very important theme that will return later in this talk. Um, our use of corticosteroids, our use of cyclophosphamide and any other DMARD that we use is superimposed on their own immune defect. So we're kind of just doing this very unusual balancing act in managing these patients. Sec next slide. This is a very old study that is a beautiful example of the problem with lupus. And I specifically pulled out the issue of viral infection in these folks so that you can see that these are the primary viruses that we think about. And there's two very, very interesting things happening here. These viruses can be triggering lupus and these viruses can be mimicking a flare. And we have the two of them occurring at the same time. So when those of us saw the pandemic unfolding in front of us, we began to ask ourselves the question, how much of our patient's disease is going to be unmasked by the concomitant infection? And how much of this will we be seeing new illnesses triggered? You can see, for example, with CMV, it's very common. And with B19, it's similarly common. Um, Parvo virus is known to be a very high trigger of lupus. In fact, virtually 100% of children who develop pediatric lupus will in fact have had a, a, a Parvo B19 exposure. Let's look at the next slide. So in looking in the literature, um, recognizing that we're early in the pandemic, I was largely able to unmask case reports. I found three of them, and the three of them have kind of an interesting um, uh, similarity. They're talking about serologic flares, and very importantly, I'd like to point out, they're talking about immune thrombocytopenia. Now, those of you who have spent a lot of time managing these folks probably recognize that you've seen a lot of thrombocytopenia in these folks. About an average of a decrease to about 100K is what you see, but these patients will go down below 10,000, which is a very severe immune cytopenia. And in the, the last study, they actually have Coombs positive hemolytic anemia. Let's look at the next slide. If we look at a large cohort of lupus patients, of which there are currently four being described in the literature. Um, if you look at Fernandez Ruiz's group um, at NYU, which is the primary United States cohort, and go to the very, very bottom, you see that there was a, a patient already described in that cohort of the 41 who were um, identified as being COVID-19 positive, who did have a severe low platelet response. So I think we may see more of this, um, the uh, very prominent use of hydroxychloroquine is very important for the understanding of the management of lupus. Um, and the, uh, the other piece of information that I'd like to point out to you is if you see the box marked hydroxychloroquine concentrations, which is second from the bottom, three of the four studies are blank. And one of them actually shows moderate levels, but not high levels of Plaquenil in the serum, which tells you something 
about the patient's actual exposure and ability to have this medicine available in their system. Let's look at the next slide. So Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, um, very, very interesting drug has been around forever. It is certainly a mainstay in lupus manifestations because it decreases hospitalization rates and mortality. Um, it appears to improve cardiovascular outcomes, has the ability to decrease thrombotic risk, but it's hard to demonstrate that our patients actually create therapeutic blood levels. And um, there is pretty good evidence that Plaquenil patients are, that, excuse me, hydroxychloroquine patients, uh, lupus patients on hydroxychloroquine do have a significant decrease in infection. So we might have anticipated that this might be helpful. However, let's look at some of the studies. Next slide. Um, the other piece of the study information that I must bring forth to your attention is that Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine um, will gradually incorporate and, and over three to four months. This is a really, really, really important point that I can't emphasize enough to you when we look at the next slide. Um, but as many of you are intensivists, uh, I'd like you to remember that the half-life of hydroxychloroquine is 40 to 50 days. If we want to believe this drug is eliminated and we stop it today, we would anticipate that it would be gone by five to eight months. I would imagine that most of you are not doing intensive care for five to eight months of our hydroxychloroquine exposed patients. So please ask yourself, when you stop hydroxychloroquine in a hospital patient, who in fact do you think you're treating? So it's important to remember that that drug is there. Let's look at the next slide. I graciously received this slide from Genos uh, Jazdani, who is a member of the, uh, Lupus, the Global Alliance of Rheumatology, whose information I will present to you. And while I'm not gonna take you through every single one of these trials, I'd like you to please notice that the studies are usually done somewhere between five days and two 10 days. Um, there's actually one that was just published in JAMA this uh, today, I think, um, released electronically that was 14 days. But we can clearly see that if we know we have trouble getting a blood level with this medicine, with the plasma studies that we've referred to, and we're doing these short-term studies, it's really not that surprising that we're not seeing a difference in morbidity and mortality in these patients with these short-term exposures. And so at some level, we need a better decision tree as to how we're going to use this drug and perhaps a more intense study. Before I got on the call with you, I did a search on clinicaltrials.gov and saw 182 active trials on the use of hydroxychloroquine. So some of them may give us some better information than we have right now. Let's look at the next slide. Please, there we go. What we do know about hydroxychloroquine in its short-term use is actually highlighted again in this slide, again from Dr. Uh, Yadzani, um, where the hospitalized patients on COVID-19 did not su suffer significant cardiac mortality. And so we don't need to be concerned about that component of this, although the QT interval prolongation has been um, very, very heavily discussed with the co-administration of azithromycin. We don't seem to be seeing any morbidity or mortality with that. 
Let's look at the next slide, please. Okay, systemic autoimmunity has comorbidities. Let's look at the next slide, please. This is a slide from the Rheumatology uh, Global Alliance that was started within a couple of weeks of the pandemic by social media, interestingly enough. And uh, they have done a tremendous job of collecting information and creating a registry. But what they have taught us, which is terribly profound, is that it does not appear that our diseases are as prominent a player in reaching statistical significance for morbidity or mortality in a patients, but rather the comorbidities we see in these patients, cardiovascular disease, superimposed lung disease, diabetes, and renal disease, which is I provided for you in a circle. I'd like to point out to you that um, uh, the biologic DMARGs actually appear to have a negative association with disease. It's a very interesting observation. Some of us think there may be an effect in changing the immune system, and other of us quite honestly think these people are frightened and they're hiding, and that's why their disease uh, activity is, is lower. Um, but we've gained confidence in providing these medicines to these people during the pandemic. Let's look at the next slide. Um, Pablos and his colleagues uh, published ahead of print this beautiful study showing us again that uh, diabetes and cardiovascular disease play a very, very important role but in distinguishing our non-rheumatic and our rheumatic patients. But overall, these patients tend to have the very classic um, high-risk profiles that have been seen across the board in other disease states. Let's look at the next slide. And um, there has been a, a rise in, a statistically significant rise in uh, patients with a connective tissue disorder. Now, subsequent studies have looked at this more intensely, and we do know that the African-American or Black and the uh, Latino or brown community have very, very high risk for this disease. And they're also very highly represented in this group. So other studies have suggested that that in fact is also the primary problem here. Let's look at the next slide. Okay, emerging strategies, next slide. College of Rheumatology has been producing this document. This is the second reiteration of it, as it says, and I'd like to point out to you that this reiteration has come before the increased interest in the use of dexamethasone, which will lead to some of my comments. Let's look at the next slide. Now, please, let's look at the next slide. Okay, I think this has a, a box on it. Is there a circle that comes up with this? Or perhaps not? There it is. So we have been telling our uh, colleagues that we should be treating our diseases. There is some data to suggest that untreated rheumatic diseases have higher risk of infectious complications than those that are treated. Let's look at the next slide, please. And, and then the boxes came right up, that's fantastic. Um, we're starting our synthetics and our patients who are uh, in the absence of infection, which is what this slide is addressing, that um, we should be giving our more advanced immunosuppressives. Let's look at the next slide. And then the most important piece for you is when you have an infected patient, what is our professional college advising you to do? 
Well, we're talking about making um, a shared decision-making, but in this particular situation, um, they are encouraging the continuation of hydroxychloroquine for the reasons that we've discussed, but sulfasalazine, methotrexate, leflunamide, and non-IL-6 biologics and JAKs probably should be stopped or withheld. And then if you have someone with severe respiratory symptoms, there should be a discussion about whether IL-6 receptors may be continued. And let me show you some more information on that. Let's look at the next slide. Of this collection of drugs that we've talked about, the two that have a primary uh, effect on the lung or a potential primary effect on the lung are methotrexate and leflunamide. And so it can get confusing if you're dealing with the pneumonitis. So methotrexate is an important drug because although it is excreted pretty quickly, it does have a polyglutamate form, which actually lasts in the system for three and a half weeks. And you can measure this in the serum if you choose to. When you stop methotrexate, you would continue leflunamide to offset some of the typical side effects that are seen with that drug. But if you have someone that's having progressive respiratory compromise, it's conceivable that you may want to think about using a leucovorin rescue technique, which is the type of thing you would have done with a cancer patient that we sometimes use in rheumatology. But my professional colleagues have not yet gone to making this recommendation but we're also not looking at your patients with dexamethasone on board. So again, dexamethasone, very, very potent immunosuppressive. It may be easier to follow these people if you minimize the effect of methotrexate. Let's look at the next slide, please. Leflunamide is an even more interesting drug. This is a drug that you can see the primary drug eliminated at 28 days, but it has extensive enteropathic recirculation, and the drug can be around for two years. It's a tremendously active drug. So if you have someone who is having trouble recovering from their infection, it's worth remembering that you can eliminate this drug pretty quickly by giving cholestyramine in this dose, eight grams three times a day for 11 days, or as those of you who manage drug overdoses in the past, you can provide activated charcoal and reduce the plasma levels even faster in the first 24 hours. So this is a technique that has been in the literature for a long time. Um, I do provide this for you as a reminder so that if you get your, find yourselves in a situation where you need to get rid of this drug, where you're concerned about someone's infectious recovery, that you can get rid of it and know that it's no longer part of the system that you're trying to effectively manage. Let's look at the next slide, please. And then a word to what might be on the horizon for immunosuppressants. I did not comment on the dexamethasone information because I think that that is pretty widely um, disseminated at this point. But this is a very beautiful summary slide, again, from uh, my colleague at the American College of Rheumatology that shows you that there is some signal in the use of tocilizumab at least in the IMPACTA trial, though this trial has not yet been published and we are all waiting to review this data. Um, and then in the baricitinib trial where there is a one day reduction in medium recovery. Um, what I'd like to end with is the importance of reviewing the actual technique that was used to study the drug. It's a very, very important reading skill 
Um, it's going to be really important as the pandemic progresses forward um, and um, the, the ultimate design and the way these trials done will tell us more about the efficacy of the medicines than the outcomes as they're summarized in a typical slide like this. Um, I really would like to thank the members of the college and my Navy colleagues who invited me to give this talk, um, and I'm happy to entertain any questions that you have at this time. Paul, oh, thank you so much. That was a whirlwind of information in a very short period of time. So we'll take one quick question, sure. and then towards the end, we'll do uh, a joint panel discussion. So you made a very interesting comment during your talk about this rheumatology global alliance being formed using social media. Could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. This is actually an amazing story. I wish I had more time to, uh, to devote to it. But essentially, there was a, a Twitter war about we need to organize. And somehow, you know, I guess it's probably the young people who are much better at this, right, than, than us old folks like me. But they did, in fact, pull it together and very quickly created a website launched that website from UCSF and made a global community to manage um, the information that we were learning about the patients that we had as they were being hospitalized. Um, it's a tremendous uh, achievement. Um, I have a tremendous salute for those who, who are uh, the semblance of the Global Alliance. And if you look up Global Rheumatology Alliance on the web, you'll be put on their website and you can enter patients in as this dynamic uh, registry continues to collect information and educate all of us on the management of COVID-19 patients who also are rheumatic disease patients. Fantastic, and let's move on to our next speaker, uh, Sharon. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm having a bit of a delay with the slides. I hope it won't keep me back too much. So my topic is about tra uh, treating pregnant women with COVID-19. Next slide, please. So why pregnant women and COVID-19? Because approximately 5% of the women between the ages of 15 and 44 are pregnant. Uh, there are physiological changes in pregnancy that could affect both the disease presentation and the disease progression, as far as we uh, assume. And there are obviously concerns in terms of the disease effects on both the mother, the, the pregnancy, and the fetus. Next slide, please. I'm gonna cover uh, quite quickly whatever I have time for with the slide delay uh, amongst these topics. So next slide, please. So uh, looking at the information available today and comparing it to what we had when we started out with, uh, until 1st of May, there were 101 publications. I did a recent uh, PubMed search, uh, again, looking at certain keywords, the same keywords, and received uh, more than 1,000 publications. So uh, there is definitely a different perspective today on pregnant women with COVID-19. Next slide, please. In the interim, there were two studies that provided a lot of information that we required and we didn't have at the beginning. The first one is a study coming up from the UK, uh, which studied uh, women that were pregnant, obviously, and had confirmed SARS-CoV infection and were admitted to hospital, not necessarily defined as COVID-19. And the second is a study coming from the CDC, where they looked at women of reproductive age, of reproductive age 
confirmed SARS-CoV infection and known pregnancy status. Now there was a large number of women excluded from the second study, but still provided quite a nice amount of data. Next, please. So is there an increased risk of COVID-19 in pregnancy? It's still a bit hard to tell, but let's look at the data from these two studies. So the study by Marion Knight, the UK study, they estimated the incidence of admission to hospital with confirmed SARS-CoV infection as 4.9 amongst 1,000 maternities. They showed that most admissions occurred in late second or third trimester, which actually says very little because these are the months where we begin to worry about when, what will happen to the baby and what will happen to the mother. And in terms of risk factors, if, if you look at the risk factors that they identified, they had basically one thing in common with the American study, which is the presence of pre-existing comorbidities. Next slide, please. Does it manifest differently in pregnancy? So as you can see here, the manifestations of the disease in, two, in these two studies look pretty similar. But then again, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, we have an, an additional uh, systematic review that has been uh, performed since then. And here you can see multiple studies that were analyzed together showing that fever and cough were the most common sim uh, symptoms and lymphopenia appeared in quite a few uh, of the women. Uh, raised CRP, which is very nonspecific and radiological findings, which were very typical actually appeared in the majority of pregnant women um, that were diagnosed with the disease. Next slide, please. How about whether COVID-19 can be lethal in pregnancy? So actually the same systematic review looked at this question as well. And it's um, unfortunately, by the time we get the data out, we have um, a pretty significant delay in terms of the information that we have. So in this systematic review basically covered only until June, 2020, they discovered that overall um, 37 women, uh, so, so they discovered um, a large amount of studies, 55 studies, continue please to the next slide. They also, they saw that the women were um, admitted quite a lot to the hospital. You can see here a 31% uh, proportion of pregnant women being admitted. This is again in the American study, moving forward uh, to the next, to the next uh, slide. They raised questions about whether there is unjustified concern uh, regarding perhaps the option of these women getting complications of COVID-19 rather than actually being more sick. So compared, so actually pregnant women are more than uh, six times more likely to be admitted to hospital than other women of their age at, at this time. Let's move forward to the next slide. Why is this? There are several predisposing physiological changes that occur during pregnancy, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but putting it very um, roughly, we could say that there is a lower lung reserve, increased oxygen consumption, and reduced cellular immunity, all of which could contribute to the fact that these women are, could be at higher risk. Let's move forward to the next slide. In addition, we have uh, our previous experience with other viral diseases. Um, in SARS-CoV-1, for example, the mortality rate of pregnant women was, was higher. 
the uh, influenza pandemics at different times, the pregnant women had not only more hospital admissions like we're seeing now with the COVID, but also with higher, also higher mortality rates. But by comparison, in the 2009 H1N1 epidemic, pregnant women comprised 1% of the USA population. They were 6.4% of the admitted patients and comprised 5% of the deaths. So having had this experience, there is justification for concerns regarding COVID-19. Next slide, please. In addition, we also know that our obstetricians do not like the, our, to have their women in the, in the ICU for a, for a myriad of reasons. Not in the least the fact that uh, this, uh, there are issues with the baby. So after adjusting for age, the presence of underlying medical conditions in race or ethnicity, this, the American studies, the, the CDC studies still showed that pregnant women were significantly more likely to be admitted to the ICU, uh, 1.5 times in terms of adjusted relative risk. Next slide, please. Again, looking at additional, uh, additional data, uh, this study showed that the proportion of women with severe COVID-19 was 30, 13%. This again, this is a, um, a systematic review with a meta-analysis. The proportion of women with ICU admission was 4%. Those with invasive ventilation was 3%. So in fact, almost three quarters of the women that were admitted to the ICU were ventilated. And the proportion of, with ECMO was 0.4%, which is actually 10% of the admissions to ICU. The odds of ICU admission in this study, which looked at a, um, a, a, whole list of study, a whole list of studies together, basically said that there was a higher odds of ICU admission compared to non-pregnant women of the same age, and there was also a higher odds of invasive ventilation. Now, knowing the resiliency of these women, that does raise concern even though we haven't seen this in single center studies or in the epidemiological data that we've had thus far. Next slide, please. Regarding lethality, I'd just like to move forward to, uh, I'm losing focus on the slides for some reason. Um, so the first maternal death from COVID-19 was reported on April 11. It was a study that was actually withdrawn with a lot of, of criticism First of all, because this uh, de death was then included in an additional case series, and there were concerns uh, re regarding appropriate care. At the time, the claim was that perhaps this woman had died because of inappropriate care, and these reports were coming out from the Middle East. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Thank you. Meanwhile, in New York, two other women died, and those claims about this happening only in the Middle East suddenly started sounding a little bit less dominant. Let's move forward again to the next slide. Looking at those studies that I described before, the UK study described five that women that died and compared to them, the epidemiological study from the States showed 16 COVID-19 related deaths among pregnant women. So interestingly enough, the rates in the UK were five times higher. This isn't very surprising given that these cases are actually all moved to an uh, investigation in the UK versus an epidemiological study that isn't targeted 
to investigate these, these cases. So there may actually be underreporting of these cases when we're just looking at epidemiological data. Next slide, please. Looking at mortality in a meta-analysis, what you can see here is that overall at, this at the time of this report, which was June, 73 uh, pregnant women with confirmed COVID died from any cause. Moving forward, that doesn't seem like a lot, but then came Brazil. And Brazil started reporting about reporting maternal deaths, 36, 124 deaths, 204 deaths. And, and this is the, the last report was from July. And I've heard that they've had over 600 deaths by this time. Uh, but again, this is yet unreported data. Next slide, please. So what do we know about the use of drugs in these, uh, in these women? So unfortunately, not much, and we're not going to be looking forward to a lot of data. Uh, this is a report that we sent out to the British Journal of Anesthesiology, looking at inclusion of pregnant women in clinical trials of COVID-19. We reviewed 371 interventional trials that were registered. 68% uh, of them declared pregnancy as an exclusion criterion. 76% of the trials investigating the uses of drugs excluded pregnant women explicitly. 31% do not mention pregnant women either in inclusion or in an exclusion criteria. So all of those questions that you're going to be asking will be what we do and not what is going, what appears in the literature because it doesn't look like there, anybody's actually going to be studying this now or in the future. Next slide, please. What about the pregnancy? If you see a pregnant woman and for some reason she, she comes to you, she's diabetic, you have to have a look at her, what are you going to tell her regarding the pregnancy, the fetus and the neonate? Next slide, please. So interestingly enough, the only two outcomes that were actually reported to be very different were preterm delivery and spontaneous preterm birth. Why is this interesting? The likelihood is almost three times higher in these studies based on two studies, and this is risk management probably. Let's move forward to the next slide. Looking at the proportions of cesarean delivery, you can see that here, um, these, these women have a lot more cesarean deliveries than most women. Next slide, please. So early pregnancy infection probably carries no increased risk of miscarriage. Our gynecologists are still not convinced whether there will be fetal growth restriction. There has been such um, experience with SARS where two thirds of the pregnancies were affected uh, and had fetal growth restriction. Late pregnancy infections probably have a higher likelihood of cesarean section and preterm, preterm delivery and also a higher likelihood of preventive NICU admission. I'll mention this a moment when I say a word about our management. Next slide, please. How about vertical transmission of COVID-19? Meaning the, the infants, are they going to be infected? So the British study described 12, uh, which is 5% of the infants that had actually a diagnosis of SARS-CoV infection. Nobody knows whether the infection occurred intrauterine, peripartum or breastfeeding. Next slide, please. Nonetheless, all of the organizations at this time do recommend that women with COVID-19 breastfeed if they wish. 
Next slide, please. So what's our experience in practice? And I'm going to be rounding up my talk with this. Next slide, please. Excuse the Hebrew on this. It's very difficult to get everything moving um, in our stats in English. So this is COVID-19 in Israel. You can see the, the two waves and the amount of uh, patients that we have treated in our hospital uh, during this period until uh, basically a week ago, more or less. And you can see that during the first wave, we had only 10, uh, 10 women, 22 women in the interim. And then we had near, near daily admissions in the last period of time of women with COVID-19. Next slide, please. In terms of screening, you get almost double the amount of positive women if you screen universally than you do based on symptoms. Still, our decision was to perform screening based on symptoms and exposure for many reasons, not in the least issues with family and with, um, with people accompanying the patients. Next slide, please. We have, uh, we have different levels of personal protective equipment for the women, whether they come in for just routine encounters, if there are suspected SARS-CoV infection or known SARS-CoV infection. So all of these routines have been set out in the hospital. Moving forward to the next slide, please. And then we treat them in different locations. If the woman is in home quarantine or symptomatic and suspected, we have a special isolation place in the obstetric ward. If they're confirmed with mild symptoms, we will be treating them in the COVID ward and we will, and the ICU people will be rounding daily on these women as well, not only the obstetricians. And if they are confirmed and moderately or critically ill, uh, critically ill they will be observed by us in addition in, in our unit. We've had two such women thus far. Next slide, please. The most interesting phenomenal, uh, phenomenon that we've seen was a decrease in deliveries. And one of the reasons that this happened um, is the fact that these women are now uh, moving to smaller hospitals, which they feel are safer in terms of the likelihood of infection. And there have been more home deliveries. And this is something that people need to realize. Next slide, please. Postpartum women with fever are tested for SARS-CoV. Um, we have seen more women request uh, moving, rooming in and more women requesting early discharge. We're seeing a higher turnover of patients, women uh, coming in and out more quickly. So all of this is happening and changing the way that we're treating these women. We anticipate that the amount of women obviously will rise in the future. Next slide, please. I'd like to thank you uh, from the depth of the SARS unit, as you can see, it looks quite differently nowadays. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much, Sharon. Being pregnant and having COVID-19 is perhaps very, very anxiety provoking, not just for the, the mother, the entire family. So from your experience, what is the impact on the access to antenatal care or the prenatal care that women receive? Uh, what has that impact been like? And have you been using telemedicine? And what are the challenges in, in using telemedicine for providing antenatal and uh, postpartum care? So um, there, is, there are actually women that are get, receiving recommendations not to get pregnant, that I can tell you for sure. In terms of antenatal care, a lot of the workup that is planned for the fetus amongst uh, 11 procedures, I actually have a slide on that, which I didn't put here on the presentation, 
but I can send around if you wish. There are, among, there are 11 uh, procedures recommended for fetal workup, amongst which basically five are now being run rather than all the 11. And again, this is uh, based on ACOG recommendations. Um, and, and, but the women are coming in and are being seen by their obstetricians as frequently as they were before. We're trying to um, set, the, um, set the meetings up in a way that pe people don't meet each, each other as much as they used to, not sit in the same room and so on, waiting rooms. Um, but other than that, I think that the prenatal care is pretty much maintained. Thank you so much, Sharon. So we will proceed with our next speaker, Jeremy, and then save some time for questions for the panel. And where uh, we have Jeremy's slides up here. Awesome. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. I'm going to speak very quickly because I want to get through these slides and provide some time at the end. So um, I'm going to talk about the COVID-19 and Cancer Consortium and uh, some of our findings about um, uh, what COVID treatments or COVID care uh, these patients are receiving. Next slide. Um, so I am really grateful to you all for bringing us together because, you know, one of the cool things here is to actually get out of our silo and hear stories from other specialties. Um, and when I was hearing about the Global Rheumatology Alliance, I was like, that's very familiar. That's exactly what happened with us. Um, and uh, indeed, we also began on Twitter um, and it was really the, the, the young ones that uh, launched that. Um, in particular, this um, resident who's now a fellow, Akash Desai, um, I wouldn't call it a Twitter war, but he definitely started a good conversation amongst us. And, and some of us decided to act on that. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, our goal was really the same as the Global Rheumatology Alliance, which was to um, come together and gather information on patients with cancer and COVID-19. Um, we had a lot of interesting startup um, uh, issues such as getting a logo, getting a website, getting a hashtag for Twitter, um, something called Simpler, um, a, 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 an account on Twitter that now has over 1,600 followers. And next slide. Um, we also built a website, which, um, which also looks in some ways similar to the Global um, Rheumatology Alliance. Um, um, and here it is, uh, ccc19.org. Next slide. Um, <clears throat> so we grew quickly um, and we grew primarily in the United States. We have some international collaborators, but we've actually um, uh, begun a collaboration with ESMO, which is the European Society of Medical Oncology for most um, countries outside the US. Um, and we're currently up to 125 institutions. Next slide. Um, so, you know, our main product is a survey that is um, intended to be um, intended to be used by clinicians, uh, healthcare providers, either those directly providing care for the patients with uh, COVID-19 or, um, or designees at institutions. Uh, and this is our data collection schema. Um, I won't dwell on it, but basically what, you know, we were interested in is collecting pretty granular information on uh, the patient as well as their COVID-19 course of illness, but also quite a bit about their cancer. That's kind of what our focus was. Um, and then um, not knowing at that time and still not knowing how much time we needed to follow patients, we um, basically created a generic follow-up form that can be filled in as many times as um, the uh, respondent wants to do. Uh, next slide. 
So we've um, we've presented. Um, so I'm seeing the slide cut off on the top and bottom. Hopefully you aren't. But um, anyway, the the main message is in the middle. Um, we've presented um, as our database has grown at several venues. This particular um, summary is from the ESMO um, meeting that was um, about a month ago or so. Um, and at that time, we had about 4,000 patients that we had analyzed, and that's the middle column. Um, and then we had some uh, special attention on the hospitalized patients, which actually make up about half of the population. Um, I will say this differentiates us from many of the other COVID-19 and cancer registries, um, in particular those in Europe and the UK, which focus almost exclusively on hospitalized patients. Um, but uh, this gives you also a more general picture of, uh, of um, patients who might be um, more in the outpatient basis. Um, as you can see from the top row, I think age has come out to be sort of the major risk factor, which, um, which is indeed what, what many studies have seen. And this, this risk that you're seeing, this adjusted odds ratio is per decade. So you can um, really ex you know, see that uh, patients in their um, 80s and 90s and older have an extremely um, elevated risk of 30-day um, of mortality, which is what we're looking at here. Um, other factors that are not really cancer-specific, but um, that we saw were, um, were male sex, um, black versus white race, um, ever smoking uh, versus never, although the um, association there borders on one. Um, and then like the other speakers um, have um, implicated comorbidities um, seem to be a major driving factor as well, whereas um, patients with three or more actively treated comorbidities had twice the risk of uh, dying than those um, who had none. Um, that association actually does go away when you look at the hospitalized group um, although certainly there may be a power issue there. And then finally, um, ECOG performance status, which now we're getting into maybe a more cancer specific measure, um, although that's really just a, um, a proxy for um, global functional impairments that um, could probably be applied to any patient. Um, this is a major driver as well. Um, a performance status of two essentially means that you're um, in bed roughly half the day um, and three and four are uh, much worse than that. Um, but uh, you know, any, any of those performance statuses, um, a much higher risk of mortality. Um, if you look at the footnote, what, what we saw by the time we presented this was that um, the patients being reported to us had an overall mortality rate of 15%. Um, and when you look at the hospitalized patients, it's 25%. If those numbers seem high to you, um, we're actually lower than most of the other reported surveys. Again, um, probably because those were um, more focused on hospitalized patients and may have had other factors such as um, acute um, needs for triage, such as what happened in Northern Italy. Uh, next slide. So here are some more cancer specific factors that we looked at. Um, and this has been consistently shown in other studies as well. Um, don't have time obviously to um, go beyond uh, what, what I'm presenting here, but um, it's consistent that patients with progressing cancer versus those that have a cancer in remission um, or um, not in evidence um, had nearly three times risk of dying. Um, but recent cancer therapy did not clearly have a signal for um, an increased risk. And this is pretty important messaging for our, um, our community. Um, we did see that uh, hematologic malignancies, lymphomas, leukemias, and myelomas had a higher risk of mortality as compared to solid tumors. Um, and then finally, having more than one cancer, uh, whether or not it's historical or current, um, was associated with increased mortality. Next slide. 
So, um, you know, a finding that we initially reported on, which um, we felt was very controversial given the timing, uh, was this, which is we looked at one drug exposure or one, one combination, I'd say, in our initial analysis, um, and that was the combination of azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine, um, which appeared to have an odds ratio of three for death um, in, uh, versus not receiving these drugs. Um, and I, ironically, our registry was founded on the very same day that uh, Dr. Raoult from France um, announced his results for hydroxychloroquine. Um, so here he is. Um, I believe he's a painter as well. So that's his own art, I believe. <laughs> Could be wrong about that. Um, but uh, equally ironic is that today, apparently, the French government's uh, opening an investigation into his um, academic practices. So um, we could maybe say more about that, but let's not. Okay, next slide. Um, so we looked more deeply into this question, um, and this is our paper from a few months ago, looking at um, who's getting a, a, a COVID treatment, if you will, and uh, how are they doing? Uh, next slide. Um, so the answer to the first question is that about um, less than half, about 40% of these patients in a, um, reported to our registry got a COVID treatment. and. Um, of some sort or another. And I think if you look at the table on the upper left, something that really stood out for us is that most of these treatments were being given off trial um, with hydroxychloroquine at the top there being the most commonly given treatment with only 1% of those um, drugs being given on trial. Um, and, and you can see down the, down the line that really the only standout is remdesivir, which is pretty much only available on trial or through compassionate use eventually. Um, and under the other category, we have convalescent plasma, which is making up sort of the, the remainder of patients who received treatments on trial. For a grand total of 15% of these treatments were given um, on a clinical trial, which considering that um, none of them were proven um, is an interesting and rather low and uh, perhaps shocking number. Um, if you look at the rights, this is showing um, what's called an upset plot showing uh, that most that many of these treatments were not received in isolation. Um, that the most common uh, was that combination of azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine. Um, and then down the line, you can see sort of as you get towards these smaller numbers, you see patients that are getting three, four, um, or five different uh, drugs um, for the treatment of their COVID-19. Um, next slide. Um, so this is a heat map looking at um, the various treatments and uh, some characteristics of whether you might be more or less likely to get the drugs. Um, and what I'll just point out is the bottom row there basically shows that patients with mild COVID-19 do not get drugs to treat COVID-19. This is sort of maybe self-evident, um, but basically moderate and severe COVID-19 patients, these are the ones that are getting uh, these treatments. If you press advance, it should show a circle there yeah um, and so you know another thing that stood out for us on this heat, descriptive heat map is that non-hispanic black patients um, seem less likely to get remdesivir although they also seemed um, more likely to get steroids or tocilizumab um, but the remdesivir finding really stood out um, if you go to the next slide um, here is a logistic regression looking at um, these factors um, adjusted for for other factors and seeing um, you know, what might remain as a predictor for, um, in this case, three kind of buckets of treatments. They're the combo, remdesivir, whether alone or in combination, and then any treatment whatsoever, um, if you advance one. So <clears throat> what we see, um, again, as was um, 
uh, sort of implicated in the prior slide is that uh, non-Hispanic black patients were um, half as likely to get remdesivir um, as, um, as non-Hispanic whites um, with statistically significant finding there, um, despite being um, slightly more likely to get any treatment. Um, you also see regional differences. So that's the second circle there. You see that uh, patients in the US West uh, versus Northeast were much more likely to get remdesivir, although they were less likely to get um, any COVID treatment at, uh, at all. Um, and then finally there, you see that the comorbidities um, actually have a major influence on patterns of treatment. Um, and this is uh, clearly reflective of some clinical decision-making um, happening um, at the point of care. Um, I think, you know, uh, probably, for example, patients with cardiovascular comorbidities being less likely to get hydroxy and azithro, um, presumably because of that um, uh, risk of the QT prolongation, um, making the providers perhaps shy away from that treatment. Uh, next slide. So then the question is of the patients who got treated, um, did these treatments alter their outcome? And, and, and again, you know, that was sort of the burning question from our initial analysis. Um, and this analysis is, is a little complex. We did a, a propensity score matching. We had two sets of controls, um, a positive control, which would be any patient receiving any other treatment uh, for COVID-19 and a negative control being the untreated patients. Uh, but I'll you know, kind of bring your attention to the, the first, the hydroxychloroquine column um, that um, alone, uh, that drug did not seem associated with mortality, but when given with any other exposure with azithromycin being again, the most common, um, there was a persistent uh, and statistically significant increase in mortality um, in, uh, in those uh, patients. If you look at the middle column, uh, there's this slight perhaps signal for remdesivir having um, a benefit. However, um, it's only when you compare it to the positive controls, which again includes those hydroxychloroquine treated patients. Um, when you compare remdesivir to the negative controls, there's, there's um, uh, no statistical signal. Um, and then perhaps most surprising and unexplained for us, given all the um, excitement around high-dose systemic corticosteroids, primarily dexamethasone. Um, we actually found the opposite signal in these patients. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential explanations for that. Um, but uh, uh, similar to hydroxychloroquine, we found that um, steroid exposure was um, not beneficial and if anything could be harmful um, when given as part of a combination treatment. Uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> so this is my uh, this is my final slide. Um, basically, we found you know, and we continue to find the patients with cancer have a high mortality with COVID nineteen, um, and and if anything, we're conservative here um, with some cancers such as lung and heme malignancy um, having the highest mortality rates. Um, and there are important both general and cancer specific prognostic factors. Uh, when you look at treatment, about forty percent of patients seem to get some sort of COVID nineteen therapy. Um, with baseline severity being the strongest determinant of that. Um, and then unfortunately, the final bullet is that no, no COVID-19 systemic therapy has a clear benefit in this population. Um, and some therapies appear to be associated with harm. Um, but I will say that clear attribution of effects of individual um, therapies is difficult because of that phenomenon where many of these patients receive uh, many different treatments um, at more or less the same time. Um, and, and so that's just an ongoing challenge of, of looking at real world data and trying to tease that out. So um, yeah, I'll, with that, I'll pause and uh, hopefully take a question or so. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeremy. What we have seen um, with the power of social media and leveraging that to form these, these alliances, these collaborations, and trying to really uh, hone in on clinical experiences across the globe in the midst of a pandemic, that's been very gratifying to see. Several other subspecialties have also described similar uh, collaborative efforts. So that's been very heartening to see. Uh, what you mentioned uh, in your presentation, which is a very intriguing um, the signal of harm that you saw with steroids. Uh, so, Jeremy, could you please elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so <clears throat> one thing that uh, we, we felt bad about was like, well, this is an opposite signal from all those perspective studies, starting with UK recovery. So then we dug into those perspective studies and not a single one of them has uh, recorded cancer as a comorbidity. Um, I believe there's five or six published now. Um, uh, and uh, so we kind of like throw our hands up in the air and say, well, we, we don't know because they didn't collect that data. Um, we don't even know if they treated patients with cancer because, you know, some of those studies had very generous um, exclusion uh, criteria that were left at the discretion of the physicians. So, um, so that's unfortunate. But, um, you know, we're looking into that further right now. I mean, one concern, of course, is infection. Um, patients with cancer are, are especially prone to infection due to their cancer, due to their treatments, due to their neutropenia, lymphopenia, you know, what, what have you. So um, we're currently looking at co-infections. You know, we, we're seeing quite a lot of bacterial and some fungal. So, you know, whether or not that's ultimately the responsible factor. Um, but um, I actually would ask Dr. DeMarco to comment as well, because I think that uh, we, our, our patients share a lot of similarities with their um, immune suppression. So thank you, Jeremy, for inviting me into the discussion. I, I think in the absence of a randomized trial, it's very hard to make a decision about this. And I personally think what we're really seeing is that physicians do in fact have a keen sense of who's not doing well. And we want to treat. And we're more likely to pick things to provide treatment for those people that were concerned are either going in the wrong direction or are in fact looking like they're going to die. I think that's the bias that comes out of these studies. And um, the, the hardest thing for us to do is to surrender our control to a randomized trial and collect information on the people, let me put my light back on, collect information on the people that we're trying to provide benefit for, for the benefit of the globe. Um, as a clinical trialist, I, I can't um, emphasize or uh, elaborate on the importance of everyone pulling together. And, and I have to say that I think the oncology community is far superior at doing that kind of work in the rheumatology community. So I'm hoping that someday we'll catch up with you guys and we can just pull a protocol off the shelf and open it up and say, okay, we're gonna treat this patient this way and not, you know, kind of make it up as we go along. Let's jump into um, this prothrombotic uh, endotheliopathy effect of COVID-19 because it affects all three uh, groups of patients. So did you in your practice or in any of the studies that, uh, that you've been a part of notice uh, a prothrombotic trend towards complications? Um, let's start with you, Paul. So 
It's very interesting you should mention that because as I had suggested that hydroxychloroquine has an anticoagulant ability and there's actually a fantastic trial from England um, on a DVT prophylaxis in knee replacement using hydroxychloroquine demonstrating that they have a dramatic decrease that's even superior to providing standard anticoagulation. And they use it like you see it in these trials for these high dose going into a low dose. Um, I did look through the literature that I reviewed and I was impressed in the absence of this, particularly because our patients in rheumatology also have mobility issues. And so by definition should be at higher risk. So it hasn't yet come up. Um, the other piece of this that's worth commenting on is at the uh, American College of Rheumatology's annual meeting, the uh, early research has demonstrated that antiphospholipid antibodies are being produced in response to COVID-19 and are proposed to be a potential mechanism for thrombosis superimposed on the hyperinflammatory profile and the DIC phenomenon that we're seeing. And yet, we're not seeing an increase in these rheumatic patients. So it's a really interesting question that needs to be answered. Great, thank you. And Sharon, have you noticed any uh, prothrombotic complications or uptick in prothrombotic complications in the peripartum period? So we haven't, you know, interestingly enough, these women uh, have anything between six times and eight times more, um, a greater prothrombotic uh, tendency. And um, we haven't, in those cases that we've seen have with massive thrombosis, arterial and venous, none of them were uh, pregnant. We, we've had several fantastic cases, um, but none of them were pregnant. And Jeremy? Um, well, I'll tell you one thing we've seen is a fervor for anticoagulation. <laughs> um, and sometimes uh, maybe a little too much, although I think um, overall probably hospitalized patients are doing quite well with DVT prophylaxis these days, um, better than before. But um, it, our rates of thrombotic complications are not not extremely high. And I would say that's like the diagnosed, right? Like, so, so what we really don't know is like how many patients are not necessarily being diagnosed. As we've seen from autopsy series, I think like almost every single um, patient who dies from COVID has some degree of um, a microthrombi at least. Um, so um, we will be presenting um, at the American Society of Hematology at the ASH meeting on thrombotic complications. Um, um, I think some of that's under embargo, so I'd be careful what I'm saying. But um, you know, I, I think that um, again, as we saw with um, in general with mortality, there are there are general factors and there are cancer-specific factors that seem to come into play, um, and those might um, just be sort of exacerbated um, in the setting of COVID-19. So um, it, you know, I think there's there's more to learn, and um, you know, even now that we have more than 5,000 cases, again, because they're not common, we we still run into statistical issues very quickly with um, uh, trying to really dig in. Um, yeah. and Sharon, I think you have a comment on hydroxychloroquine. Yes, well, actually we ran uh, two systematic reviews on this. Uh, we felt that the uh, level of evidence was insufficient. One, one thing that I'd like to point out that people don't think about is many of these patients are receiving diuretics and uh, giving a combination of diuretics, hydroxychloroquine, and then adding azithromycin on it with electrolyte disturbances probably predisposes to any cardiac complications, arrhythmias, um, QT prolongations, or whatever. So, and, and none of the studies that has been performed on this 
has actually looked at diuretics. We just did a really brief review on our on our data, and we found that there is a larger, a, a more use of diuretics in these patients that had more issues. So just you know, putting it out, out there for everybody. I'll also just mention briefly that the use of hydroxychloroquine has vanished in our population. It's really incredible to see um, the the complete evaporation of enthusiasm. But that also basically says that you know any kind of prospective trials can be very difficult. True. Yeah, yeah I, I I must say I've been saddened by the reality that our science has been replaced by our political predispositions and. Um, that was a huge loss, I think, for the, for the world community. Um, and hopefully some of the people who are registered on clinicaltrials.gov will actually continue to move forward to provide us with some meaningful data. That message, I think, is really important for everything that we do in trying to bring this pandemic under control. And that lends itself nicely into another issue that affects all of these different uh, patient groups. In all of your presentations, you mentioned comorbidities and these racial and ethnic disparities. So we know that COVID-19 really magnified the effect of these health inequities. What lessons have we learned specifically for each of your patient populations in how we're managing both COVID-19 as well as taking care of the needs of the non-COVID-19 patients as well? Any, any of you could go first. Well, just my name is on the beginning of the run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think it's because of an alphabetizing, but who knows? Um, I think that for the rheumatology community, it has really driven home the importance for us to uh, pay attention to the comorbidities. And we've been talking about cardiovascular risk actually, you know, for well over. 10 years, and now it's really coming to fruition for us that this is an important problem from our patients. But clearly the racial disparity is something that uh, we and other communities continue to wrestle with acknowledging the importance of honing in on that aspect of care and that to, to emphasize and refocus our efforts on identifying that specific issue as an important medical component for how we approach these folks. Sharon? So uh, as you noticed, um, there have been racial, racial disparities shown in, um, in the studies. Um, interestingly enough, it was shown in both the uh, UK study and the US study that have completely different systems. Uh, what, there, what this raises is a question of additional uh, issues that may be perhaps uh, uh, pre, uh, prenatal care, quality, quality of prenatal care and baseline uh, comorbidities, which have not been properly adjusted for in full. But there also may be some genetic predisposition of some sort that we're not diagnosing yet. So that's, I think that needs to be said as well. Uh, so um, the one thing I'm gonna say is that th this actually brings out um, one of the challenges of our crowdsourced efforts, which is that they're unfunded um, and um, completely volunteer driven, which is, um, 
which has been amazing. But one of the challenges we had is when we realized that th there's a hole in our data, and this is a, a perfect example, um, uh, we weren't collecting information about like urban rurals uh, residents or you know some other socio-demographic factors. Um, it's really hard to kind of go back to over a hundred sites and you know say, um, please go back into the you know and you know give us more information. Um, so it's an ongoing challenge. Um, but you know um, we also honestly took a hard look at our membership, um, which again grassroots kind of came about you know organically and. Um, but, you know, as, as sort of the summer went on and, and Black Lives Matter and, you know, we, we kind of looked at um, who we were and we, we realized that we, we, could, we needed some improvements. And, and that kind of reflects, you know, academic medicine or just, you know, medicine in general. So, um, you know, we've, we've been very conscious about, um, about diversity amongst our membership. But um, we're currently looking, like right now, we're analyzing our data and trying to understand more about, um, certainly we see um, disproportionate numbers of uh, patients, uh, of uh, black patients, as well as um, uh, Latino and Latinx patients. Um, um, but uh, whether they're doing worse, um, they might be actually, but um, there may be an important um, factors that account for that. Um, for example, we definitely see that black patients present with more severe COVID. Um, and why is that? There's a many different um, possibilities. Um, and there's sort of the pre-symptomatic phase and there's um, there's that phase when you might feel well enough to not go to the doctor and then you arrive at the doctor. So we don't, we don't know what happens before presentation and whether that's the driver or whether it's a more rapid fulminant course. You know, there's many questions and we're not gonna be able to answer those I think with our data, but um, certainly we might um, think of ways to investigate them. Absolutely, and these are lessons that we we definitely should not forget, even as we get a better handle on the pandemic and how we just do science as a whole and making sure that every voice is heard in this inclusion, diversity, equity in healthcare. I think that's going to be very, very important as a takeaway. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. So I'm gonna ask all three of you this question about vaccination. What are you telling your patients as there are these promising vaccine candidates available uh, that are just within reach of the general public. So what information are you sharing? So Sharon, let's start with you. Um, what are you sharing with your patients about vaccination? Nothing. Uh, for At least for pregnant women, um, I think uh, there's going to be a bit of time until there's something that actually happens in terms of vaccination. Um, I have a sense that it's not going to be only for pregnant women, but you know, let's not ruin this evening with my optimism. Paul, what, and what are you telling your patients? So our, our issue in rheumatology is a very interesting one because as I understand it, we really have a three-pronged approach going on right now at vaccination. We have some killed protein, and then we have some adenoviruses that are being impregnated and then we have some live virus actually being considered as an option. Adenovirus as a live virus and live virus itself in an immunosuppressed patient um, raises a tremendous amount of questions for us. And, and I've been prompting them to understand that it is a realistic possibility that a live virus vaccination may come out and that the risk of them receiving it would be more than I would want them to take. 
And so I've been trying to manage the expectation of the reality that the first wave of release may not be one that they can take, particularly biologic patients. And Jeremy will probably comment on rituximab and its effects because we share that drug among others. But we have been uh, concerned about how these patients are going to handle these uh, the introduction of these viruses. So I've been cautiously optimistic. I'm a big believer in Pandora's box. Um, I'm a big believer in imparting hope. Um, but I've been realistic in the sense that I do have this real concern about how we're going to think about managing a live introduction of a virus. And Jeremy? So I treat lymphoma, and although the diseases are different, I think Paul and I use all the same drugs and have all the same issues. So, um, so I won't repeat that. Except, you know, basically the advice I give, even you know, for vaccines have been around for you know influenza vaccine. I mean, sure the patient can get it, but it's not going to really work for them. A very small chance of it. So more important is that everybody that's around them gets vaccinated, so they can have their local herd immunity. I mean, we can debate about what herd immunity looks like for COVID, uh, for SARS-CoV-2, but um, I think that would be my advice um, is pro probably, and, and then the live virus, you know, concern is also, you know, transplant patients and others. I mean, it's it's a real concern. Um, and so, um, but I, I I would hope that their, their sort of local, um, their relative, the friends and relatives would be eager to get the, the vaccine because I think that would be the, their, you know, their, their best opportunity. Absolutely. So we're in, in a sense, we're lucky that there are several vaccine candidates that there's not just one type of vaccine that's going to be available on the market. So that's that's the positive news mm -hmm. from uh, the vaccine world. Um, so any final thoughts before we wrap up? This has been such a wonderful discussion and you've been so gracious with your time and you stayed over time for the Q&A session as well. So thank you for that. And any final words of wisdom? So Jeremy, let's start with you. Um, well, one word is that the Zoom virtual uh, background thing does, starts to break down when it gets dark. So my face has been like literally shrinking for the past <laughs> hour. No, um, you know, one thing I've taken away from this is um, really we really have to think beyond our silo a little bit more. Um, I'm, I'm going to reach out to the Global Rheumatology Alliance because I think that there's there's power in numbers. Um, we've you know we've we've each individually done a you know a fairly good job at building these these moderate sized registries, but I, I do think that. Um, the more we work together, especially around questions of um, like drugs, like rituximab, we mentioned, like you know, we just don't um, we we don't have enough numbers in, on any of these individual registries to make um, strong kind of practice changing conclusions, um, which I think need to be made. So um, you know, I think this thing isn't slowing down. Oh, the, you know, the other thing we didn't talk about, of course, was you know how long do we follow patients who've had COVID nineteen? What do we what are we thinking of long-term sequelae? We don't have time obviously today, but um, certainly that's something we're thinking more and more about, about, you know, fortunately the majority are surviving um, and, and we have to kind of understand what happens long-term. Sharon, words of wisdom? So I'm going to add on to that saying that um, maternal um, critical illness is basically, has been a very neglected aspect of uh, maternity it's easy to deny it when you don't want to see it. And I think that registries are crucial for understanding and not registries for deaths, but registries for severe critical illness of mothers. 
And having that sort of registry is crucial for us to ever learn anything about these women, particularly because they're excluded almost chronically from clinical trials, despite recommendations to actually include them. Um, and that needs uh, global thinking and changing of perspective and looking at this thing differently. So uh, we have to start thinking about this population differently, thinking about the mother and not just the baby. Absolutely, and Paul? Um, I think that my colleagues have done a beautiful job of saying the kinds of things I wanna say. The, to me, the, the most important thing that's emerging from the pandemic is we're starting to recognize how serious and important it is for us to believe and act that, as a global community, not as pockets, not as rheumatologists, not as oncologists, not as OBGYNs or intensivists, but doctors who care and doctors who care together. Um, and I think the more that we pull together as a global community, as physicians, the more we can inspire our leaders to act in the same way. And I think if we can help develop that global mindset, we're going to come out of this much better. We're going to come out of this no matter what we do, but we want to come out of this better. Absolutely. Better, stronger, more collaborative, and really leveraging the power of our collective wisdom to tackle this crisis that has really affected all of our patients, families across the globe, irrespective of what kind of uh, medicine or science or uh, country or background we come from. So thank you so much. This has been a great session. We will have a session on long COVID as well. So we'll touch upon some of those themes that have emerged here in that session. Thank you everybody for joining in. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you.